Welcome to So You Want to Be a Witch, the podcast for soul-centered entrepreneurs and the people who love them. Welcome back to So You Want to Be a Witch, the podcast for soul-centered entrepreneurs. I guess I have a radio voice today. That sounds that was that was surprising. I'm your host Sarah M. Chapel, and we're here today with Ayana Young, the co-founder and executive director of For the Wild. I know a lot of you are big fans of the podcast and the media projects that they do, and they also have a variety of other land stewardship and conservation projects that I'm excited for us to talk about today. Ayana, welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really looking forward to being in conversation with you. So before we go any further, um, who are you and what do you do? (laughs) My name is Ayana, as you've mentioned. I like to say that I'm a lover and protector of the wild. And I am extremely devoted to the temperate rainforest region, which could be considered northern Cal- the redwoods of northern California up the coast to southeast Alaska. Mm-hmm. I feel very committed to protecting these forests from resource extraction and development and restoring so much of the land that has been raped and pillaged, especially over the last few hundred years since uh, colonization started. <clears throat> and I also have co-founded For the Wild, which is a organization that, along with the podcast, does land-based projects like you were mentioning, the One Million Redwoods Project, which is a redwood reforestation project, kind of a a Noah's Ark for the species of the temperate rainforest region, and then other conservation projects like in Alaska with the Copper River Delta, and then the weekly podcast where we really deal with topics at the intersection of climate, environmental, and social justice issues. Otherwise, who I am, I would say I'm a, a mother of seven fur children, three cats, <laughs> three dogs, and a rooster, uh, which is All pretty right. exciting. The rooster is my brand new uh, child, and he's awesome and fitting right in. And um, and yeah, gosh, I who else am I? I'm I'm so many things. I'm a multifaceted person like all of us are. And uh, yeah, I'm just, uh, gosh, I'd say it's a, it's, it's a really big question, but hopefully what I've said so far has kind of given everybody a, a, a little bit of a sense of who I am. And um, yeah, I'm grateful to be alive, even though we're living through such challenging times with climate chaos and the Anthropocene extinction and now COVID-19 and all the other stuff that we're all living through. I'm I'm still very grateful to be alive and so grateful at how clear the skies are right now. I'm soaking up every moment of these crystal clear skies as we've lowered our consumption and our carbon emissions. So it's it's a very complex time to be alive, but I'm here for it. I'm here for it all. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And yes, it is a big question and impossible to fully answer, but I appreciate you sharing some of your, some of your many parts of yourself with us. Um, I love, I'd love to open with this idea of, of being grateful for being alive in complex times. I actually just wrote something about that yesterday because I had that same feeling of like, complete over, or I, my feeling was of complete overwhelm, <laughs> immense fear, and immense joy all at once. And with the work you do so very close to both the, uh, the challenging realities and then also the possibility of, cause I, I would venture, it sounds like with your work, we need to untie this a little bit. I mean, you're, you're creating possibility, envisioning and moving towards a future that doesn't exist yet. How do you navigate that space of, of gratitude and being alive in times like these? Yeah. Well, I really have to slow down and be grateful for the small things because the big things are so big. Yeah, it's so overwhelming what we're dealing with. There's so much suffering in the world, both human and more than human. Um, we're losing 200 species a day during this time. Uh, many of the creatures that are charismatic that we are in love with, like orca and lion and tiger, they may not be around, you know, but in a, in just a decade. So it is, it's, it's, there's, it can be challenging to feel grateful when there's so much pain. 
but I have really been interested in the spectrum of emotion. Um, and this is something that I've been taught by my, one of my mentors, Joanna Macy, who has created a, a framework called the work that reconnects. And she speaks about how when you open your heart up to this time, not only will you feel more pain and suffering, but you'll also feel the other end of the spectrum, which is that joy and that gratitude. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge the overwhelm. It is overwhelming. And it's important for us to feel the pain. It's painful. Like we, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's right for us to just ignore the reality of our time or not actually allow ourselves to have emotions over it. I think that's very important for our relationship to the earth to show the earth that we do feel terrible. We feel guilty. We feel grief. We feel overwhelmed. We feel depressed. All these things, those are important. But how do we move through those feelings into action and into gratitude? And that's something I sit with a lot. And so, yeah, the way that I practice my gratitude, um, you know, just to get really, uh, I would say, um, tangible, like what my tangible practices are, they're very simple. I'm not somebody who has complex grounding practices or, or gratitude practices. So certain things like for me, I try to take slow mornings. And before I would wake up, I'd set my alarm. The moment I'd look and I'd put my alarm off of my phone and I would take my phone off airplane mode and I'd start on emails and Slack messages right away. And so I'd have no time to actually wake up and look outside and be grateful that the sun rose again, or that I woke up or that I was in a warm bed or that I had kittens cuddling me. Like I didn't have time for that. And so very simply, what I do now is I give myself 30 minutes to an hour to just be in a cuddle position. I mean, I love cuddling with animals and I think it's really underrated. <laughs> I think it's like an incredible spiritual, uh, and it was so much medicine to be with the animal world. And so I spend time cuddling and that helps me be in gratitude because I feel warm and loved and safe, safe with them. Other things that I've done uh, to, to just slow down, to be grateful. Cause I think that a lot of the time, if we're too busy and we're too overwhelmed and we're filling ourselves with all this other stuff, it's really hard to tap into the gratitude because our mind is just, you know, bombarded with everything else. So, um, so things that I, you know, in terms of slowing down with the, uh, just morning slowdown, I also have been slowing down in the way that I, you know, go on a walk or I, um, I look at the sun, like I'll just sit in the sun for a minute. And it's like, how luxurious is that? You know, we don't need like a lot of money. We don't need we don't need like access to exclusive whatevers. Like we have so much to be grateful for if we slow down enough to see the simplicity and the beauty that is life. And I mean, it sounds so basic and it is basic, but that's also what's so beautiful about it is it's so low tech and it's so basic. And most people have access to the sun on their face at certain times of the day or at certain times of the year. And it's like, soak that up. Like, Oh my gosh! It's a, I, I just think about how much um, how much joy that I receive from things that are just so simple. Yeah, baths, cuddling, walks, um, hands in the soil, smelling a plant, touching a tree, um, being with a loved one, being able to call my mom. I mean, all of these things like. That's how I practice gratitude. And there was another thing that I, I was doing for a while when I was feeling really depressed and overwhelmed is also when I'd wake up and when I'd go to bed, I would make myself say 10 things I'm grateful for. And it was kind of funny because at first I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Like, why am I doing this? And I'd be like, oh, okay, fine. Like, well, I guess I'm grateful for, you know, my dog. And then I'd be like, yeah, I am grateful for my dog. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm also really grateful that my mom is alive. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. I'm really grateful that my mom's alive. And I would just like start to build. And then by the end of saying 10 things, I was like, damn, life is so beautiful. Like life is so beautiful. And it was so silly because 
at the beginning, I didn't want to do it. And it seems so ridiculous. It seems like, why would that even help me? But it really does. And so um, I really, yeah, I recommend people just creating their own little gratitude practices at the beginning of the day, because I really feel like it makes the entire day so much better when we take a moment. Because I think too, when we take that time to slow down to have gratitude, really what it is, it's a prayer. It's a ritual. It's something that allows us to get into another state of being and it connects us with other ah, energies in this earth. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's even much, even though it's basic, I think it's much more powerful than it may seem. I love that, that we can make these small shifts. The reminder of the sun is particularly potent, um, especially because I know a lot of folks listening to this show uh, work inside on their computers a lot all day. <laughs> and we can so easily lose track of the fact that there's an entire world out there. I'd love to go a little bit deeper mm-hmm. into, into your work. Um, and one of the things that I see in what you're doing, and please tell me if this is not correct, of course, but is that, you know, you're kind of, you're a steward for the future. And I think a lot of soul-centered business owners and nonprofit folk are, we're trying to create something that doesn't exist yet in order to help more people in ways or more than humans in ways that are not, not served and not supported. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, the 1 million Redwood Project even the word a million feels huge. <laughs> How do you hold a vision for a future in the midst of what we're experiencing right now and make that tangible so that you can take actions today? With the One Million Redwoods Project specifically? Oh, sure, or in general. <laughs> I just think that one sounds like so like, whoa. <laughs> do you mind like maybe sharing a little bit more or maybe even an example of what your... Um, you're looking for with this response, just so I can be really clear with how I answer. Yeah. I think, and I'll start with, I think that it takes a particular skill set and muscle um, that we could all cultivate, of course, to have long range vision, break it down into the day to day. Um, and I think both from like kind of an emotional, spiritual perspective and also a practical perspective to see what might be possible <laughs> and to continue to hold that in ways that are both practical, but then also resilient, right? We started this conversation, like mm-hmm. this is a world filled with pain. Um, so I guess I'm curious about maybe both from an emotional and a practical side, how do you hold a commitment to an, a vision so big and also make it something that you can do today? Mm. Wow. What a good question. Thank you for thinking that through with me. Gosh, I feel like that's so much of my work (laughs) is Uh holding big visions and, uh, and then learning actually how to do them on the day to day, because you're so right. I mean, you do need both. You need to be able to dream big and vision it out and have that creative, juicy enjoyment of thinking about the project. And then you also have to be really comfortable with the mundane and the frustrations and the little movements of every day that, that it takes to actually get to where we're trying to go with the projects. So, um, yeah, with the 1 million Redwoods project specifically, it was about six or seven years ago, maybe eight. It's hard to say now I get really locked up with my time, but I was, I, you know, I heard the call of the forest to do this reforestation project called the One Million Redwoods Project. And I was really jazzed. I mean, my whole body was tingling. And I'm sure a lot of you listening, when you've had a creative idea or you've had like a conduit moment, like it just feels so good. And my whole body was was electrified by this, by this, um, yeah, by this calling to do this work. And I thought thing I thought certain things through and I was really excited, but it was very much in that creative phase. Now, it's taken me about, uh, yeah, like three to four years. So since 2017 is when I really started physically working on the project. Before I was working on the project more in an idea stage. Um, So let's say now it's been, yeah, about three, three and a half years. And although I do keep the bigness of the vision that that more long view vision and to me that's the creative fire that's the integrity of the vision 
But then the last three and a half, four years has been really like in the trenches with the project and it's muddy and it's frustrating. And it's like digging under every rock and be like, oh no, you know, like for instance, I thought I had found the solution to, to use these uh, compostable pots that didn't have any toxic glues or anything in them. And I'm like, okay, that's how we're going to do it because we're going to get away from plastic and we're going to... um use these pots that were created from restoration projects and other forests and it's going to be great. And then I started using those pots and the pots fell apart because they didn't have the strength to hold up to a lot of watering over months and months. And I'm like, oh gosh. And so it's like, that's like an example of like, darn, you know, this is the mundane being in the trenches. And then I'd have to go back to the, to the long vision, the big vision and be like, okay, but my integrity with this vision, with this project is to really do less harm and to really use less resources. So I can't just say, well, crap, like these, these pots don't work. I'm just going to go back to plastic or I'm just going to give up because nothing's going to work because I can't do it. Well, I had to go back to the drawing board yet again, because the, the, you know, that creative vision, that heart vision was about having integrity and was about really doing this project differently than commercial industrialized ways of reforestation. And so yeah, the day-to-day, there's so much coordination. There's so many trials and tests. A lot of things don't work. A lot of things, you know, I feel don't, you know, yeah, like they, you know, you try them out and you realize, oh, that's not the way that this is going to move forward. And through the trials and tribulations, I just have to keep going back to why I'm doing this what this is about. And I really believe that with anything. And I even think like, if you open up like a donut shop, you know, there's going to be things that you run into. There's going to be investments that you have to make that you don't want to. There's going to be machines that break down. That's a part of the work. It's, and it also, it's a beautiful part of the work because it makes us stronger. I can say for me, it's made me so much more resilient, tough, focused, and ultimately committed because then I can look back and I can say, you know what? Through all of these frustrating, annoying uh, pieces, all of these um, trials and tribulations, all of the research and development that sometimes went to dead ends or didn't always work, what I'm proud of is that I've stuck with it and that I've stayed committed. And then when I start to partner with other people, they can be like, oh, wow, you've been going at it for four or five years now. Like you, And for people who have been in these projects, in their own projects or in the work for longer they have more respect for me because they go, yeah, you know, she's done these things. Like clearly she's looked under the rock. She's dug deep. She knows she has the experience. She, she's made the mistakes that are necessary to make, to make me a valuable partner in projects because I'm not somebody who's just hasn't ever, you know, like is everything's gone perfectly. If everything goes perfectly, which it never does anyways, (laughs) like I don't think people learn as much. And so I really come back to the integrity and the commitment and feeling really confident that no matter what, I'm going to stick with it. And it's going to be a roller coaster and there's going to be so many ups and downs, but sticking with it, that type of um, strength of character, I think is so valuable in so many different ways. And so yeah, I could get more detailed, of course, and I could give probably a hundred examples of what that's looked like in my own projects. But uh, yeah, I think what I've now learned um, on taking on any new projects is to leave room for things to not always be efficient and to leave room for mistakes to be made. And to actually, you know, for me, I really want to share. And I don't know if mistakes is the exact right word, but I'll just use it for now. I think it's important to share the mistakes or the bumps in the road because everybody's going to go through them. And I actually think it makes us a lot more trustworthy as allies when we can tell each other, yeah, you know, I tried this thing and it didn't work how I thought it was going to work. So now I've transitioned to this other way of doing it. Because like I said, it's impossible to do anything perfectly. And anybody who's marketing um, in their work that, you know, everything's just been hunky-dory the whole time or look at how good we are, but not look at things that haven't worked out. You know, that doesn't actually feel, it doesn't actually feel relatable. doesn't actually feel honest. 
Um, and so in a way, like I'm proud of my scars. I'm like, yeah, because I've been in the field. I've actually been in the trenches and I have the scars to show for it. And that to me shows a level of devotion. And because for this, you know, for this project, the 1 million redwoods, it's about the forest. It's really about being in relationship to the forest and being of service to them. And so I can come back to the trees and say, Hey trees, like I'm still here. Like I'm still doing it. Even when I thought I should give up, even when things weren't working, like I still push through. And I feel like for me on a spiritual level, the forest is like, good, you know, we're good. I'm glad that you didn't just run away when you, when times got hard. So I really would say to anybody listening, who's going through their own roller coaster and their projects, if it's, if it's something that you've decided to commit to stick with it, the projects will just get more and more beautiful and complex, like an old growth tree with all of the burls and waves and moss and all the stuff that grows on the bark that makes it that much more, um, yeah, that much more beautiful. Thank you for sharing with us. And I love that you're talking about mistakes because they, they do happen. I think we do ourselves, but we also do all the people watching us a huge disservice when we pretend that everything is normal and fine all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd love to zoom back a little bit, back in time, uh, to baby Ayana. Uh, before the call of the forest, what were you doing and what shifted in your life when you realized that you had a calling to do this, this deep, restorative, land-based work? Well, yeah, I was not raised to be an earth defender. I would not say that. I would not say that I had a community of folks who were activists or land restorers. Um, I grew up in a really suburban area in Southern California that really didn't have a lot. I mean, it had the beach, um, which I, is nature, I guess, but like it was also a very developed beach area. So yeah, it wasn't something that I thought was in my cards, but um I was always connected to the suffering of the world from a very young age. And I did feel very deeply about things. Very, yeah, I felt, I felt a lot. And that I think has been a blessing. And when I was younger, it was kind of more of a curse because I didn't have an outlet for these emotions of empathy for the suffering of the world and the community that I had around me didn't, they didn't feel that way. And so I felt very lonely and really almost out of control in my, in the way that I was taking in the world's issues. Like, I feel like I felt like I didn't have an escape from them or people that I could really process what was going, what was going on. Because maybe it was like, oh, well, you're just depressed. It's like, well, I'm not just depressed. It's like, we're losing 200 species a day. Like, we should all be depressed about this. It's not like, oh, just do some Prozac or Wellbutrin, like, go take your antidepressants and you'll be okay. Because, no, it's like, so it was very frustrating growing up in that regard because I, I was feeling so much and I knew things were wrong. I knew that factory farming was messed up. I knew that the trash, our recycling wasn't like, I felt like this isn't right. I felt, I felt these things, but like I said, you know, um, like at the time, like I'd go to therapists, but they, it was more just like the psychological dimension, but there was no, uh, grounding of like, you actually have a right to feel these things. It was more like, how can we help you not feel these things? I was like, I don't want to not feel these things like we're actually going through an extinction. We're like, there's actually an incredible amount of suffering. I don't want to be disconnected from the truth because if I'm disconnected from the truth, then how am I going to be in right relationship to the earth? If I don't want to actually feel the pain of the earth, then like imagine what the earth feels like when we don't want to feel their pain. Like that's not, that's not a good friend. That's not a good daughter or lover to just ignore what's happening for others including ourselves. So yeah, it was, it was really, um, it was a hard time just being aware and awakened to things early on, but not having a community or not having an outlet where people were like, yeah, I mean, that's honestly a huge reason why I started the podcast 
because I felt this deep loneliness and need to speak with mentors and thought leaders and elders who did understand what was happening in the world. And instead of just telling me to, you know, get over it (laughs) in a nice way, they were willing to be like, don't get over it. Like, get mad, get rageful, get grief, full of grief, get full of passion, get full of love, like show up to this moment. Don't just, don't try to erase it. Don't try to bury it. Don't try to ignore it. Don't, don't be in denial. And I was so grateful for the podcast for that on a personal level. But um, yeah, I'd say like, you know, I, so I, I, in college and undergrad, I started the humanities and that was kind of a relief for me because not that the humanities had anything to do with the environment or what I'm doing now, but at least it was a place where I could get into some deeper thought with people that were willing to really be in discussion. So I was studying theology and studying religion was so interesting and it really opened me up in a lot of ways and art history and philosophy. And then I, you know, really was like, but I I want to, I want to be more involved with the environment. So I started studying environmental and uh, environmental sciences in grad school, but there was something that I'm like, I don't want to, I just, I, I couldn't learn about the earth in a classroom in New York City. It just didn't feel, I wasn't actually getting what I needed. Not to say that it's the wrong choice for everybody, but for me, it wasn't actually feeding and nourishing this deep gnawing in me. And it really, it was Occupy Wall Street that was the nourishment. Um, It wasn't the full nourishment because it wasn't centered around the earth, but it was at least centered around taking action. It was centered around rage and passion and people actually being outraged at what was happening. We should be outraged. It was the first time in my life that I was around people who were willing to actually feel intensely about what was going on and speak about it and put their bodies in the streets for it. And that was so eye-opening for me. And finally, and this was, you know, I was 24 years old. So finally, I was able to have a community of people that I could jive with really, really deeply uh, on my like, um, yeah, and in that deeper, in that deeper sense of what I believed, my belief systems. But you know, the one thing about Occupy was that it was really more about economics. It wasn't about environment. And even though I started the Environmentalist Solidarity Working Group with my partner, March, at the time, um, you know, it still was a very small part of that movement. So after that, I moved out to the woods and I started doing other work for the earth and really learning even more deeply and starting the podcast and all that jazz. So that's a bit of the journey of how I got to where I got or where I am. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's only gotten deeper. I mean, ever since I said, I'm doing this, like I'm committed to this. This is, this is where I'm going with my work. This is what I'm devoting myself to. I've never turned back. I've never questioned it. I've never, there's never been a moment that I'm like, ah, like, but why am I really working for the earth? I should be doing something else. Never, never. (laughs) There's never a moment that I have felt, yeah, that kind of questioning of like, am I doing the right thing? Now, it's not to say that my every time, it's not to say that I don't question that within my projects. Like there are certain systems within my projects that I'm like, wait a minute, like, is that really the way I should be doing this? Of course there's that. And there's always restructuring and rethinking about how to do the work, but I never question the work. And I am so grateful for that because I remember really before Occupy, I was always in question. I was always feeling chronically dissatisfied with what I was doing with my life. Um, And there was always this kind of like touch and go. I never felt like really married to my life. And I feel very married to my life and very in vow. Like I really feel like I've taken vows to this work. And I'm so grateful to be focused and not questioning what I'm doing for that soul's purpose. But I think that any of us who decide to commit our life to be in service to that which we love, to be in service to our belief system, I think we'll never really question if we're doing the right thing because of course we are, uh, whatever that looks like. And that doesn't have to deal directly with the environment. That could be a number of things to be in service to that is beyond our own individual 
egotistical like stuff. Like that to me is the thing to get over. I look at my life. I'm just one little person. I'm going to die. I don't need to be a legend. I don't like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't, my life doesn't have to be about me. My life can actually be about what I'm in love with. It can be about the earth and I can be just a devotee of that. And that to me is so much more fulfilling. And it's honestly so much more relieving because when my life was, when I was struggling so much because my life was about me, it felt very, yeah, it just felt awkward. It felt uh, confusing. I was always questioning things. I never felt steady. I never felt stillness. Um, so yeah, that's also been a big part of my journey. Just the, the psychological break from the ego and the, the break of trying to make my life all about my own, you know, dot, 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 you could fill in all the blanks. <laughs> Let's go a little deeper here. Um, I'm like, I have so many questions now, so I'm trying to keep track of them in my head. Uh, But there's a theme that you're mentioning that I'd love for you to speak to a little bit more specifically, which is this idea of commitment and especially committing to something that is outside. You're like, it's not me (laughs) committing to your your love. What a beautiful way you said that. Um, I feel that commitment is kind of a a tricky beast for so many of us. I think a lot of us are raised. to abhor commitment, actually. Um, And with that, you know, there's so much dissatisfaction that does stem from that lack of commitment. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what commitment means to you and what what you mean when you say that word? Gosh, yeah, it means so much. Like I think about, it means physical commitment. It also means emotional, psychological, spiritual commitment. It's like all the levels of commitment. So what it's meant to me personally. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting. Like I'm trying to explain this in a way I I feel it. Like I I feel the commitment in my body. It's very visceral. Um, but yeah, what that's looked like to me is sacrifice. Um, knowing that if I'm committed to for the wild, that means that there are going to be certain things that I'm not going to have time to do. Or there are certain things that I'm going to have to give up doing, or there are certain parts of me that I'm going to have to let die or lie down because I don't have the time or the space psychically or otherwise to do everything. And none of us do. So I think that's part of commitment for sure for everybody, but definitely for me is really being like, okay, if I'm committing to this, then that means that, uh, you know, I'm not like, for instance, like I, except for the, you know, last year I did travel a, a bit more, but Before that, I was like, okay, like I'm on this land. I'm at this, I'm building this nursery. Like I can't go on a road trip with my friends right now. And I can't, um, you know, take a day off for a while. And I have to work really hard right now. And I have to deal with all of the BS that comes with running a business. Like, you know, in a lot of ways, I wish that I could just be in the creative world all the time. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I wish I could just be doing like the, quote, fun stuff. But no, I actually have to do the administrative stuff and I have to do the taxes and I have to do all the payroll and all that jazz. And that's also a part of commitment because if I'm going to actually commit to doing this work, this work isn't only the things I want it to be. The work is all the whole spectrum of what it actually takes to do the projects, to stay in line with making things happen. Um, And so that's part of the commitment for me is doing things that I never wanted to do. Um, Also really challenging myself. Like when I committed to For the Wild and I had never been an executive director before. I didn't know how to lead a team. I didn't know how to like be a boss, so to speak. You know, those are things. And I, I struggled and I hated it and I cried and I screamed and I had panic attacks. Like I was so stressed out just not knowing how to actually hold that kind of responsibility. And I had to just stick with it. And that was part of the commitment. It's like, well, I committed to doing this and I'm just going to stick with this and I'm going to work through it and I'm not going to give up. And I'm going to let myself, you know, have these hard moments, but I'm going to get back up on the horse or whatever, you know, I'm going to wake up the next day and I'm going to look at this email from the bookkeeper that I don't want to look at. 
but I'm going to look at it and I'm, and I'm really going to just still like silence, I don't know if silence myself is the right word, but like kind of let all the anxieties and all the no, no, no. And I don't want to, I don't want to, wow, wow, wow. Like I had to silence those things and I still do sometimes and just go, but I'm going to do it now. And so, yeah, I think it's like, there's commitment does have, there are parts that, uh, or how am I trying to say this? Sacrifice is a part of commitment for me. Um, focusing and releasing other visions or desires is a part of sac- of commitment for me. Um, not giving up when times get hard. And also, you know, the flip side of that is also really uh, committing to joy. Like, I don't want to just do the projects and be like, oh my gosh, I hate all these things. No, I mean, that's no fun. Like, that doesn't, that's not going to create a beautiful project if, you know, I'm, if I'm complaining all the time. So I think also part of the commitment is like, yeah, there's going to be, I, I've had hard times, but I don't want to be in a place where I'm like, well, I'm committing to this and now I'm a martyr and now I'm just going to be frustrated and complain, but I'm doing it. It's like, no, I also want to commit to doing the project with joy and with gratitude and with learning. And of course, like, you know, allowing myself to be frustrated at times, no doubt. I don't want to just ignore those pieces. Yeah, it's like committing to the whole spectrum of what is, what may be, what are uh, committing to the uncertainty of things. Because no matter what, like anything that I commit to, for instance, like there is uncertainty. Life is uncertain. So it's almost like when I commit to something, I'm committing to whatever comes. I'm not committing to the things that I know about. Because like the things I know about are only a portion of what's going to happen. So I think also just being uncomfortable comfortable with that unknown piece and saying, Hey, I'm committed regardless of, of what may happen in the future. Um, because like, again, like it goes back to a belief system or, uh, it also goes back to the integrity of why I'm doing it in the first place. I so appreciate you speaking to that in this moment in particular, while everything is always uncertain, I feel like for a lot of folks, especially small business owners and people doing projects like yours and nonprofits that, the unknown with COVID-19 and who knows by the time this is released, maybe we'll have some more known factors, but at this moment we don't Mm -hmm. is bringing that really to the surface for a lot of people. And I see folks responding in so many different ways, which is of course fine. But that idea of that commitment, that through line, that that's what prepares us for this, these moments is, is knowing that uncertainty is a given. (laughs) Yep. Absolutely. I'd love to talk a little bit about your, what sounds like your favorite part of this, the business part, um, but running a nonprofit. How did you, you know, there are definitely folks who, who do work and don't set up nonprofits. They plant things. Um, you decided to create an organization to support this mission. Can you talk a bit about become, the choice to become a nonprofit and what that means for, for you and for, for the wild? So I think I started the nonprofit, like the actual 501c3 stuff back in 2018, 2017-18. And first I was fiscally sponsored by two different groups before I actually incorporated for the wild in its own 501c3. Yeah, I guess like I this was back, you know, let's say 2016-17, and here I was like the 1 million redwoods project had been born the podcast had been born i was making a film about old growth logging um and so really everything i was doing was socially beneficial it was not nothing i was doing was actually to make money like i wasn't trying to capitalize on every anything i wasn't trying to i wasn't trying to make a product that i was selling and i'm not saying these things are bad i'm just explaining like that's not what the work was i wasn't creating you know, content to be purchased. It was important to me that the information that I was obtaining could be open source and free to people. It felt really important to be of service to many communities. And because those were the things that I was interested in, I just kind of thought, well, this seems more like a nonprofit than it is a for-profit because again, like I'm not selling things. I want it to be free. I want people to have access. And it's really, uh, it's the products were all 
people in service to communities, both human and more than human. And so uh, I was like, okay, well, I guess it makes sense to have a nonprofit. But then of course, like I didn't actually want to start a nonprofit because I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like this seems really intense and I have to do all these things and I have to, you know, so much paperwork and accounting and I was really not interested in that. And so that's why at first we started to be fiscally sponsored because I was like, okay, well, as long as we can get grants, but I don't have to take on all of the responsibility of running a separate nonprofit, then that seems like that may be the best of both worlds. For us, it didn't end up really being sustainable because we have you know, we have staff that we pay every single week. And for the fiscal sponsored projects, they seemed like there wasn't as many transactions happening with staff payments. And so um, I think fiscal sponsor is a great way to go about it. If, if, if people are listening right now who have wanted to kind of be in the nonprofit world, but not having the ability to because it's also, you know, it takes time and money to set up a nonprofit. So if you're not resourced to do that, but you do want to work in a nonprofit way, I think fiscal sponsor is a great option. But yeah, for us, it just ended up not really working because in a way we were already kind of our own nonprofit at that point. We weren't just a project of another nonprofit. And so it was maybe four months into being fiscally sponsored that we realized there was just way too many transactions um, for another nonprofit to be able to handle, like that wasn't in their, in like they didn't budget it in their nonprofit to be able to handle all of the work that we were doing in our projects. So I was like, okay, I guess then we have to set up our own nonprofit, and that's why we actually decided to have our own. Not that I ever wanted to have this, and yeah, and so the nonprofit, what it allows us to do. Um, it allows us to get grants, which is really the biggest reason for us that we have a nonprofit. Because ultimately, whether we were a for-profit or a nonprofit, we would still be doing the same work. But most of the time, you're not going to be able to get grants unless you're a nonprofit or you're fiscally sponsored. And because we aren't selling things, and I didn't want the pressure of having to sell things in order to keep this information accessible to people. The grants were a very important way for us to be able to keep doing the work um, and being supported by foundations and folks who really believed in what we were doing and also believed in making what we're doing free and accessible to everybody. So yeah, that's you know that's why I started the nonprofit. It's gotten a lot easier, which is the beautiful part of it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, there was definitely a learning curve. I was really frustrated a lot of the time. Just learning how to read legal jargon is a whole skill that I had to learn, you know, really having the focus and being like, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read this 20-page IRS document. You know, before it's like, not only did I not want to do that, I don't even think I had the bandwidth to be able to read things that I really didn't understand and really just sit with it and be like, okay, what does this actually mean? Because the language that the legal system uses and the, you know, a lot of the government writing, it's, it's not in uh, you know, it's definitely not written in for enjoy, enjoyment. That's <laughs> And it's not written in a way that uh, always makes sense if you're not already knowledgeable about certain, certain pieces of it. So it really was a learning curve to be like, okay, like that's what this means. That's what this means. Okay, this, okay, okay. You know, and so I just over the years have been able to really learn and really grow my capacity to read a lot more in terms of this kind of reading and take my time and not just be frustrated and just skim through it all. Like there's, I never skim business documents. I think that is like a quick way to fail <laughs> is if you're not really like, if you want to have a business, whether it's a nonprofit or not, I think we all have to get really comfortable with actually reading everything, contracts, all of that stuff. And we need to be really analytical and understand what it's saying. And if we don't understand, then we need to figure that out. 
because we should never sign something or send something in if we don't actually know what it means. And so I feel very, very clear on that. So yeah, it's been a definite journey of learning how to keep up with everything and how to keep um, all of the books really organized and clean in case we get audited. So I can just be like, here you go. So like, I don't worry if somebody wants to look at our books. I don't feel like, oh my gosh, but I didn't, I don't know because I did this thing when I didn't really know what I was doing. No, it's like, that is not the way I want to run a business because that just feels like anxiety producing to not feel really organized and clean and clear um, with every aspect of the business. So because a nonprofit is still a business. It's not, it's not like less businessy <laughs> just to <laughs> say that for any folks who are wondering that. It's not like you get off, you get off with less businessy stuff. It's actually more work. So uh, there's more accounting, there's more, there, there's more procedures. The form 990 for the taxes, like it's a lot to do. So uh, yeah, you you ought to just know that, that yeah, you get benefit because you'll get grants. But even with grants, you have to do reporting. You know, grants are also a lot of work. It's it's not necessarily just somebody goes, oh, I believe in your work. Here's some money. It's like, I believe in your work. Here's money, but also here's all the potential regulations around that money. What you can use it for, what you can't use it for what we expect you to do with it and <clears throat> how we expect you to report that information to us and at what time frames. So again, like it was a learning curve for me, but something that I want to say is start small and be really organized for the folks who want to start a nonprofit or anything like start, like don't bite off more than you can chew because then you're just going to be overwhelmed and you're going to get really disorganized. And then that's going to just lead to disaster potentially. <laughs> uh, and you don't want to get in trouble with the IRS and you don't want to get in trouble with people who are giving you money or investors or donors or anything. So um, it feels, yeah, really important to be clear, be able to have the space and the capacity to really read through things and set up really good systems. Like, yeah, that setting up systems has been huge for me um, with the business aspect, but there's also the opportunity operations aspect too, you know, there's the business aspect, which may be like accounting and um, taxes and insurance and like all that jazz. But then there's the operations of like how to actually work with people and how to make sure projects are being done on timelines and deadlines. And, you know, there's all that whole aspect too, which is a whole other skill set that I've had to really learn through starting the nonprofit and through staffing uh, the organization and keeping people who are working with for the wild, making sure that they feel clear and organized so that it's not like a sloppy asks, ask of them to get work done. Um, I could really talk about this for a long time, but oh I'll God. pause because I don't want to get like too, you know, off in the ethers with it. But we, yeah, that's we could do a whole thing. episode on, on team and operations. Let's put it on the docket. Yeah, exactly. That is, <laughs> is, is fascinating. But I want to make sure that before we close, if you'd like, if you could talk a little bit about the different projects you're working on so our listeners can have a bit of a sense of them um, and then how they can support you. Mm, thanks, Sarah. Yeah. So we have the podcast, which comes, which comes out weekly, every Wednesday. And uh, we have so many amazing guests some um, deeply philosophical guests, some more practical guests, like scientists talking about plastic, to philosophers talking about slowing down in deep time, to indigenous leaders talking about pipeline projects or connect reconnection with the earth. So there's really just so much to dive into. I'm a very curious person, so I like having a lot uh, of different topics to discuss. So there's a, a huge anthology. We have, I think, 160 something episodes of very dense, dense, dense top, dense content. So, yeah, jump into that. You can get it on iTunes, Spotify, or um, pretty much anywhere you can get podcasts. You can also listen to it on our website, which is forthewild.world. You can sign up for our newsletter there. You can make a donation to the podcast or uh, support us through Patreon, through our website. You can go to the Patreon link. And then otherwise, we're doing the One Million Redwoods Project, which I'm building a native species nursery, which you could kind of imagine it being like a Noah's Ark for temperate rainforest species, trees, 
understory plants, flowers, fungi. It's amazing. It's a lot of work. Working with the earth is so different than even uh, working on with media or even business stuff. So it's, yeah, it's super challenging, but really rewarding. And if you want to support that project or you want to be a part of it in some way, you can donate on the website or you can email us at connect at forthewild.world. Um, and you could also email us at that email if you want to reach out for something else entirely. We get back to everybody. And then the last big project that's that we're working on right now, uh, the last few years I've been working up in Alaska with Tongass National Forest to stop old growth logging on our public lands. We only have two around 2% of all old growth left globally. And we've been slaughtering these old growth trees with taxpayer dollars on our public lands for years. It's really insane and totally disgusting. And so I've been working with communities on that. But as I've been doing that, I've also been working in the Copper River Delta, which is just north of the Tongass. And I'm working with the EAC Preservation Council to uh, do a big conservation project on 3 million acres to protect it from coal mining. There's these beautiful mountains surrounded by glaciers and this amazing river delta system and moose and salmon. And it's absolutely stunning. And to imagine these mountains being blown up for coal is just devastating. So we are working with the Native Land Conservancy and the EAC Preservation Council on that. So yeah, if definitely like follow us on Instagram if you want to keep up to date with the Copper River Delta project, because we'll be sharing more about that uh, in the upcoming months. But yeah, I think that's, you know, for, for a quick uh, update on the projects, that's about where we're at. And um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Yeah, you can yeah follow us on social media, newsletter, subscribe on iTunes. Um, and we're also coming out with a little new mini series for for the wild on mondays that's called deeply rooted grounding practices to weather the winds of uncertainty which i'm so excited about and they're going to be these um we're going to have past guests come on and and give us grounding practices because i think as we're entering this era of covid which we don't know how long it'll last i think of course we need to be physically prepared but I think what is equally, if not more important, is to be spiritually prepared for this time and really be grounded. So yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> that sounds amazing. We'll make sure we get all of that linked up in the show notes so you guys can easily find it and follow and donate and support and all of those good things. And Ayana, thank you for spending this time with us today. Inspiring and nourishing for me personally. Um, And I know that our listeners are going to benefit greatly from hearing you talk so candidly about your experience with this work. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. You too. And everyone listening at home, thank you for being here. We make this because of you. So thanks for listening. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to connect across space and time and COVID isolation. I appreciate you guys and we'll see you next week. Bye for now.